Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Each week we talk about heart rate variability and how it can be used to improve your overall health and wellness. Please consider the information in this podcast for your informational use and not medical advice. Please see your medical provider to apply any of the strategies outlined in this episode. Heart Rate Variability Podcast is a production of Optimal LLC and Optimal HRV. Check us out at OptimalHRV.com. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I am Matt Bennett. I'm back with a very special guest today who I'm really excited to talk about. Even our pre-podcast, before I hit record, uh, we're having just some great conversations. Dr. David Eddy. Dr. Eddy, welcome to the show. Um, I would love uh, to, I, I was uh, in a rabbit hole with your bios online, with all the great work you've done, looking at your articles. Uh, came across to, uh, one of the your publications in the AAPB Journal, but I'd love just to introduce yourself uh, briefly uh, to our audience. And I always love, love to start out uh, with, with the question of how did you come to heart rate uh, variability? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I'm a clinical psychologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, I'm also a researcher there at the Recovery Research Institute and Center for Addiction Medicine. I'm also a researcher in the Center for Digital Mental Health within Mass General Hospital and an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. So, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm <laughs> a little clinical, a lot of research. Um, I've always been interested in heart rate variability uh, as, uh, as you know, uh, uh, a biomarker. Mm -hmm. of, of risk of pathology and that really comes out of my training as a graduate student which I'll talk to briefly as well but I'm you know as you know I'm also really interested in heart rate variability biofeedback like yeah you know, how can we leverage what we know about heart rate variability um to affect real world changes in people's lives and to improve treatment outcomes and so, you know, I'm a little interested in antecedents, but I'm also uh, interested in clinical interventions and outcomes as well. And, you know, I'm primarily focused on, on substance use disorder. I've done quite a bit of work uh, on uh, borderline personality disorder as a condition as well. Mostly, you know, most of my work now is really focused on substance use disorder on addiction. Um, and I really, in my, my training as a graduate student, as a PhD student, I was, I was uh, also quite focused on, on substance use disorder. I studied under uh, Dr. Marsha Bates at uh, the Rutgers Center for Alcohol Studies. I think it's now the Center for Alcohol and Drug Studies. Uh, and that was really a, a psychophysiologically oriented lab. You know, we were doing HIV research. Um, she had um, some collaborators in that lab who were you know, really notable um, figures in the field, including Ev Evgeny uh, Vashilo, who you know, really well-known Russian mm -hmm. physiologist. You know, yes. really some of the important did some of the important foundational work in this area. So I was really privileged to. You know, study under uh, Dr. Bates and and Dr. Vashilo, as well as um, uh, uh, Dr. Jennifer Buckman there, and, and other researchers, uh, including Bronnie Vashilo. Um, so I had a really rich, rich training experience, and and it was really you know working uh, at the Center of Alcohol Studies that I got interested in this work. You know, I had some training as an undergraduate student in. in you know, neuroscience and I, you know, had some lab experiences, but it was really when I got to grad school, I got um, indoctrinated into this, 
into this important work. And there I also ran a few clinical trials as a graduate student on, on heart rate variability biofeedback, which of course was developed by Evgeny Vashilo and Paul yep. Lira at Rutgers. Yes. Um, and, and so so it sort of makes sense that this is where my my career has gone, right? Um so, so I, I just a question about that graduate. I mean, I'm assuming uh not because and, and I just keep my hair short so it doesn't turn gray as well. You're your distinguished gray hair, but your more your accomplishments is that you you've been in the profession for a while. So when were you in uh when did you start to do this in grad school? What what year are we talking about? Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, like 20 I started grad school in 2010. Okay. Yeah. So you know, I, I finished grad school around 2015, 2016. Uh, I went and did my um, clinical residency at Mass General Hospital, stayed on to do a postdoctoral fellowship. And I've been on faculty since then. Awesome. Um, so, so, yeah, absolutely. I've been in the field for a while now. And that's really where I, I came from. That's how I got interested in this work. Uh, one of the things I've really tried to do as uh, an independent investigator is uh, take the work we were doing, uh, that I, I was doing as a graduate student, at Rutgers and and it really extend that. And one of the things we we were doing a lot of in grad school was curiosity activity paradigms, and we were we were uh, observing and studying how people would respond to stresses in the lab and how that might affect craving for alcohol and other drugs, for instance, and, yeah. and in terms of the risk for relapse. And you know we learn a lot in those curiosity activity paradigms. But something I've really tried to do as an independent investigator is test some of the assumptions. Um, that came out of that work in real world settings and under real world conditions. So I've done a lot more ambulatory research um, in the last like five or six years using ecological momentary assessment, which is where we, uh, you know, uh, prompt people with brief surveys in real time through their smartphones. So yeah. we can assess their, their mood or their emotions in real time, craving, so on and so forth. And, you know, with that as well, I uh, couple uh, ambulatory psychophysiological monitoring using wearable biosensors. So, uh, you know, I have folks, you know, while they're doing, say, a week of EMA surveys, they're also wearing an ECG monitor um, and perhaps also a, a smartwatch uh, or a device like the Empatica E4, yeah. uh, which is monitoring heart rate variability and skin conductance and body temperature through, through a watch. Awesome. So, I, I mean, what are some of the insights that, that you have gained along the way? I, I know that's such a huge question for, for all the experiences, the research, the thinking you've done on this topic. But but I just as you have worked with heart rate variability and got to work with some of the that the pioneers uh, in the field, um, just sort of you know working with uh, we know folks substance use personality disorders highly dysregulated nervous systems in many ways. Just what are some of the insights lessons that you've learned um, being really in uh, deep into this research. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things we were talking about before we we hit the record button here was, you know, how people uh, with substance use disorders uh, tend to respond differently to our curiosity activity paradigms and healthy controls. And, you know, one of the inherent limitations, I think, you know, we're seeing in the field is, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we were talking about stress detection algorithms, you know, how can we leverage heart rate variability uh, to you know, identify stress that's perhaps occurring outside of conscious awareness uh, using wearable biosensors like 
smartwatches, yeah. fitness trackers, for instance. Like, you know, that's an important um, um, area of my research right now. I'm trying to develop the algorithms that we could embed in smartwatches to detect stress in real time. You know, as a substance use disorder researcher, I'm particularly interested in this question because a lot of the risk that's conferred for relapse uh, comes from, uh, you know, factors that are outside of conscious awareness. So even uh, though folks might identify in early substance use disorder recovery that they're experiencing aversive affective states, that they feel uncomfortable, that they're, you know, experiencing significant craving, they're not always very good at identifying the antecedents of that and acting effectively around that. So the idea is if we could detect stress in real time, I mean, we could prompt individuals using a just-in-time intervention we, um, through their smartphone, for instance, to act differently, to become more aware of their stressors, uh, and in turn, hopefully, may prevent relapse or at least prevent lapses. Yeah, you know, substance use. Right? And so, you know, development of stress detection algorithms, you know, is it's an important clinical goal. Now, there's there's uh, researchers in industry who have been working on this problem for years. Yeah. Right? You know? And there are stress detection algorithms embedded in, in some commercially available devices. Mm -hmm. The problem is, you know, we suspect that most of those uh, algorithms were trained, their machine learning models were, were trained using folks without pathology. Yeah. The problem is, you know, and it's, it's an empirical question, you know, we need to, you know, we need to test these algorithms uh, to determine how well they're going to, you know, potentially support individuals who are experiencing some form of psychopathology, right? And so, you know, we have potentially some good stress detection models that are out there. Unfortunately, you know, most of them, are, you know, being developed by industry and are behind a, a firewall, yeah. and we're not going <laughs> to be able to access them anytime soon. That's one of the reasons the NIAAA has funded, you know, my research is, you know, so that we can develop publicly facing uh, algorithms that perhaps work a little better with people who are experiencing psychopathology. Yeah. And out of curiosity, because, you know, uh, working, you know, and a lot of my lessons were with severely traumatized teenagers working in child welfare. Substance use could be in there as well with the individuals I worked with. But almost that, that the, the folks I worked with you can almost flip everything you know about the nervous system and stress and just turn it upside down. It's like the higher their heart rate, it seemed like they were more, they at least self-reported more regulation. And we would see it in their behavior and in their moods as well. And we're like, this makes no sense really. And cortisol it used to be kind of more cortisol. You were always stressed out, but we were looking at research where actually there was a higher and lower cortisol could have lead to dysregulation. And it's just like, uh, nothing got simpler. Let's put it that way. No, no, no. There's just, there's tremendous heterogeneity. And, and in the study, I, you know, I just mentioned, you know, you know, we've got our, you know, phase one data and we're looking at it and we're, we're starting to train, you know, uh, uh, an algorithm or de develop a model using our machine learning approaches with um, collaborating with uh, Dr. Rich Fletcher at uh, MIT. 
Mm. on this and you know one thing we're we're finding is just tremendous heterogeneity in in yeah. terms of how folks are responding we in this study you know we we did both a curie activity paradigm and a week of ambulatory monitoring with the same participants wow. and we are, we actually wanted to see you know whether the model for stress detection trained on the lab data performed better or worse potentially than the the model trained on ambulatory data but we're seeing tremendous heterogeneity and and that's sort of within our sample of individuals with substance use disorder but we also know that you know folks with substance use disorder often respond quite differently to healthy controls in our curie activity paradigms you know so mm. you know that in part could be a reflection of the you know the pathological state they're experiencing as as, as people experiencing substance use disorder um I mean, it could all be also be a factor, an individual factor that's different about people with substance use disorder that's contributing yeah. to the, the problem, right? And so, you know, one of our hypotheses is that, uh, you know, sure, you know, substance use can lead to, to problems in self-regulation. It can affect us neurobiologically, psychophysiologically. It affects, you know, alcohol and other drugs can affect the cardiovascular system in adverse yeah. ways. And so we see on average people with addiction have lower on average heart rate variability than, you know, healthy people in the population. And that's also true for, you know, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. Generally, yeah. as you know, and, and probably most of your listeners will know, lower HIV tends to be associated with, with you know, mental disorders and, and yeah. pathologi physically pat pathological states as well, uh, medical conditions. So... Uh, so, you know, that so low HIV is probably a symptom of substance use disorder, but yeah. we also think it's a contributing factor to the maintenance of substance use disorder, because once you have lower biobehavioral flexibility represented yeah. by lower heart rate variability, you probably have less capacity to dynamically respond to stresses or challenges in your environment in more effective ways. And of course, we know that people with substance use disorder you know, become more and more reliant on substances to cope emotionally and and you know as you rely more and more on alcohol and other drugs to cope you know you're um you became you become less uh, able to harness other kinds of coping strategies and and of course the problem just compounds it's a vicious yeah. cycle folks find uh, absolutely so how in the world with what you just said and, and the 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 vast deviation you know uh, you know that that the population that that you're working with doesn't really match up with other norms, but there is a lot of variation within the population as well. How the heck does one go trying to create an algorithm with all this variation? So so I'd I'd love to just get a little peek behind the curtain and how do you when you're seeing this and you're looking for an algorithm that I would assume would go on this very diverse population's wrist uh, mm -hmm. measuring it how, how do you go about even starting that that process well I mean, the, the first question is can we do it uh, <laughs> yeah. right? and because because stress detection has been achieved empirically by by you know academic researchers yes. and, and these these you know results have been published but again you know typically it's in you know a, a population of you know, folks who, you know, aren't experiencing, you know, mental disorders or, yes. or you know, and are physically healthy, yeah. right? So the first question is like, you know, can we do this? I, and I think, 
the answer to that will be yes, but it won't be easy. Yeah. And so what, what we're really doing now, I mean, you know, we've been able to, uh, you know, um, you know, identify, you know, create an alg- a crude algorithm that, that does detect stress, but it's not at the level of specificity or accuracy that we want it to be at. So then the next thing we need to ask ourselves is are there individual factors uh, essentially covariates that we could be entering into our machine learning model that could potentially dial up the accuracy of the model. So that there are individual characteristics like age, sex, body mass index, race, um, substance use history, um, primary substances used that might actually, you know, help increase the accuracy of our algorithm. And that's really what we're testing now. Is we're, yeah. we're trying to understand if, if there's these individual factors that can increase specificity uh or alternatively do we need to be stratifying individuals as high or low on certain measures and of course you know long term if we you know ultimately have a a device or an algorithm that we you know um cook into an app that people can download from the app store onto their smartwatches you know perhaps that app when when you're setting it up as an individual end user, you know, you might have a series of questions that that app asks you yeah. to collect the information that it will then use to sort of dial in the algorithm. So it might say, how old are you? What's your sex? You know, what's your height and weight, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously there's limits to that. We don't, we, you know, we, we don't want to, you know, have to ask people too, too many things. And it's, you know, we don't want to, you know, make it an onerous task. You know, we really want something that just kind of works when they they install it. But we might, you know, we might have to ask for some individual information to get it to really work yeah. as well as we like. Yeah, I would assume just what I know. And, and you know, my frustrations with population norms is the stand, standard deviation is so big on the in the studies. And the studies are honestly fairly limited in what you can find. But, that, but the standard deviation, all these are so huge you know, and that's within gender and age demographics, even within those, they're so big. So do you feel like, because one of the things that I I guess maybe a conclusion I've come through with with my deep dive into the research is you're almost an in of one, you know, I, I hope we get better population norms you know, and that kind of research gets funded. I don't know if standard deviations will get smaller. I assume maybe they could as our technology gets better. But like, I'm kind of wondering is to get an individual's, you know, to say, hey, you're in the red with your stress response, you know, pay, practice some resonance frequency breathing or mindfulness or whatever intervention that, that might be set up for them. Do, do you do you need some previous heart rate variability biofeedback on them as an individual? Because it seems like with the populations that I, we both seem to have a passion for working with, who know? Yeah, there's probably a lot of dysregulation. I, I would imagine, and we've seen this is people have a lower overall than the population norms would be. So are are you thinking about getting some baseline data to get those sort of alerts for them? Or or how are you thinking about sort of the end of one in, in this, uh, in your thinking? Yeah, it's a perennial problem, isn't it? And you know, there are other ways we can go about this, right? I mean, I've been talking about developing an algorithm that perhaps dials, uh, dials in using... Uh, you know, some individual information. 
but another way, you know, you could approach this is by um, dialing in the algorithm by, you know, training it in real time using yeah. that individual's data. So rather than using a training data set from a population that you presume represents broadly the individuals that are going to use this app, you could actually train the app in real time using that individual's data. So you could use um, self-report. So you could, for instance, ask an individual to rate their stress several times a day yeah. over the course of a few days or a week, and the device could monitor their physiological arousal or state um, at those, mo those moments and could actually then be trained to identify that individual's pattern of um, physiological arousal um, and, you know, predict stress in that way. So there, there are, you know, other ways of doing this. And yeah. we might end up, that might end up um, being where we land. You know, yeah. if, we, if, if we can't do this, you know, uh, if we can't predict stress in to the level we would of accuracy that we would like to, um, because there is just too much heterogeneity in the, the populations we're interested in, yeah. then that's that's plan B. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's, a, that's a little more complicated and a little more than onerous for the end user, isn't it? Because then you're, you're actually asking them to do additional work. It would be much nicer if they could just download the app and it just works. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that, that's, that's kind of not, not, not to totally problem solve this off uh, on the podcast, but, you know, I, I wonder too is, is there, because this has just kind of been my thinking about where this could go, uh, is like, could you get baseline? Because that, that to me is what's really starts to make the end of one a powerful tool when you look at just that individual is, what is your baseline over a week? And in using that data, plus probably some survey data and demographic data as well um, to, to really say, okay, we know what your baseline is over the week. Now, is that a good week or a bad week? There's still limitations there. But then when you see sort of outlying spikes in the data against someone's own baseline, Absolutely. Are we getting, I think with like what we do at Optimal is like the, the morning readings, three minute morning readings, which, you know, is, is just a different way to measure. We use RMSSD. So when you see outliers in that to question, okay, what's going on, how to plan my day based on how that compares to my week or 30 day or all time average. Absolutely. And, and you're collecting all that data 24-7, which is is really exciting of what we could learn in the process. Absolutely. You know, the most crude stress detection algorithm could simply identify an individual's heart rate baseline yeah. Yeah. and, you know, look for deviations from that, of course, controlling for movement because that's going to, you know, impact heart rate. But, yeah, you could potentially have a very crude stress detection algorithm based on heart rate alone. And that would certainly have some advantages because we know that risk-worn devices are much better at identifying heart rate accurately yeah. than heart rate variability because yeah. HRV assessment is really, you know, obviously affected, as you know, you know by uh, noise and artifact yes. Uh, yes, in a way that heart rate um monitoring is not you can yeah. have quite a lot of missing data and still assess heart rate pretty accurately yeah but heart rate variability indices are really affected by noise um and that's another thing we're working through as well like the you know 
the wrist is possibly the worst place to be collecting <laughs> yeah. HIV data and PPG sensors, which are the, the sensors uh, that, you know, smartwatches um, uh, contain that it allows them to, you know, monitor heart rate are not as good as or as yeah. accurate as say gold standard ECG. Yeah. You know, but, you know, we again, you know, we, we, we want a practical intervention here. Uh, we're not, we don't expect that people are going to go out and buy ECG devices, much less wear them. Right. Um, but we do know people wear smartwatches and, you know, they use smartphones. Yeah. And so we really have to work with a technology that people that already exists in people's lives as best we can, knowing that there are some limitations. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm, I'm struck by a fascination with you know, creating an algorithm. Um, one of the things, and this will be a podcast I've recorded, but won't, won't be played till a week or two after we, we have this one live, is sort of my surprise is uh, when I first got really interested in HRV is I was, I was stuck in this, I think it was a 1997 journal article that I'm sure you're familiar with over the European Society of something or the other that -hmm. continues to be sort of the Bible of HRV algorithms. Not to say that there's not been work done, but I don't, I couldn't name an algorithm that's been added since then. As any good grad student, you always want to see something within the last couple of years, but Mm -hmm. we're still, I, I see that referred to. So as you look at creating a new algorithm are, are you approaching that to say okay the 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 obviously you're you're building upon past learning but we're we're creating it from scratch or we're going to use low frequency and rmssd and very low frequency like how do you even go about what i think is incredibly exciting because there's got to be new algorithms out there i would think we haven't found everything so Tell me about the thought process and then how to realize and even test a new algorithm. Yeah, and so the, I guess it's an important distinction to make here, right? Because you're talking about that uh, 96, 97 work group, HIV work group paper uh, that really articulated the the you know main HRV variables yeah. um, that were you know in use at that time. Uh, and you know define them and that's really the sort of the paper we you know people tend to cite yes or you know reviewers one-sided if you don't uh and you know that's fine even though there are there's some information in that paper that's now outdated so for instance um you know they they talked about the low frequency high frequency ratio as being possibly an indicant of sympathetic parasympathetic balance and and since then sort of the idea that the low frequency is a measure of sympathetic control has been refuted and is, yep. that's no longer believed to be the case that's not to say that there aren't some sympathetic um, components in the low frequency bandwidth of hrv but we know that it's actually much more complicated than that right. so the low frequency high again frequency nothing got control. easier on us <laughs> no and, and that the, you know that's still like you know people still when i i get papers to review you know refer to the low frequency high frequency ratio as the the balance of sympathetic and and vagal or parasympathetic um tone or, or output yeah. and you know that's because they're reading these older papers which speak to this and are, you know highly cited and and largely yes. you know fairly trustworthy even even now you know and a lot of what they said absolutely stands to this day but there's been some aspects that have been refuted and 
you know, when when I'm talking about algorithm de development for, say, stress detection, I'm not necessarily, yeah. I'm not referring to, you know, we're not developing new HRV indices. What we're doing is we're taking existing HRV indices, either high frequency HRV or RMSSD, yeah. if we're principally interested in vagal or parasympathetic control, which is usually what we're interested in, or heart rate even. Yeah. Uh, and so we're using those, those sort of... Um, well-articulated, well-known HIV indices in our in our models, but where you know one of the things we're testing presently is you know which HIV indices um, give us the predict best predictive ability in terms of stress prediction. Yeah. You know, like RMSSD and high frequency HIV are really highly correlated, but you know, so if they produce you know, similar results, then we're probably going to use RMSSD because it's computationally less dense. It's just yeah. like it's it's an easier thing to calculate for a device that uses less energy than, you know, high frequency because that requires a fast four-year transformation and, yeah. you know, which is just a few extra steps. So both are valid, but we're going to take the less, like, energy expensive yes measure you know if it gives us just as much value in our final stress detection algorithm Great. an important distinction there you know we're not we're not creating any new hrv indices um uh, we're really just utilizing the pre-existing measures that we have in new ways and and are you one of the fascinations that i i'm questioning the validity of my fascination. Uh, I, I think I need to drop it, but I, I got to ask you as you explore this, because I've become very, very excited, a little worried, but that's a whole different non-HRV arena with artificial intelligence. Um, how, when I see, when I feed chat GBT RR intervals and what it can tell me back, um, you know, uh, spectacular, like, like just in, in, in the time frame that it does is amazing. So, so we're getting to the point and let's just pretend we have the perfect AI, which I know we don't right now, but we got really, really good stuff when it comes to heart rate variability. It's, it's really good. I'll, I'll give it that from my testing with it. We can ask questions of the algorithms in different ways. Um, and, and initially I got excited of, okay, you know, we, we collect all this data during a 20 minute biofeedback session, you know, what, what's RMSSD and low frequency together telling us or in a three minute morning reading, you know, what, what does SDNN and, you know, max men tell us together? Are, are we measuring slightly different and the conclusion I'm kind of coming to is it doesn't really matter. RMSSD is going to give you 95% of anything you'd want to know, and everything else is just going to confuse 99% of the users out there that want to know if they're doing where their uh, you know, polyvagal system's doing today, kind of how their uh, vagal nerve is operating. So I wonder if uh, may maybe you could spark hope in me again do you see any arena and doing 24 seven kind of monitoring obviously is a, a little bit different of an approach than, than how I was thinking about it. Do you see any room there where a, where the perfect AI could tell us, look at these algorithms and tell us slightly different things or is 
low frequency, just going to give us probably the best that's out there, RMSSD for other things. I'd love to get your, any thoughts or epiphanies you've had on this? Yeah, well, a few thoughts about that. You know, I think you, there, perhaps you're, you're speaking to, so in your question, you know, you're speaking to some uh, HRV measures that are less well studied. And I think there's a lot of potential for interest in uh, measures of complexity. SD1, yeah. SD2, you know, which we don't really understand as much, um, chaos theory, right? Yeah. And so that's sort of like the vanguard, I think, of HRV research. And, you know, but I think we're a ways off really fully understanding um, those measures. The sort of the, the sort of better studied RMSSDs and, you know, uh, SDNN and, you know, it's, it's maybe it's a little plain vanilla, but, you know, we understand those measures a little better. Um, yeah. And, you know, can AI be leveraged, you know, to um, help us better understand some of the complex problems we're, we're working through? Of course, you know, but we also have to be really careful, you know, that, you know, AI can represent a black box, you know, that we're, we're feeding information into. And we're yeah. not always sure, you know, how the information that's being output was um, achieved, calculated, yeah. um, derived. You know, so we have to be really careful. And this is a problem I see uh, in uh, HIV post-processing, uh, where researchers maybe don't have a background in HIV analysis and they, you know, rely heavily on an algorithm baked into a post-processing software like Kubios yeah. or Limeware, and and they don't really take the time to manually inspect the raw signal and and kind of check for noise and artifact, and they just sort of trust that the sort of the baked in, you know filters you know yeah. are going to do the job and you know just one one needs to be really careful similarly with um a lot of output hiv statistics from from wearables you know like fitbit have their their algorithm for ca ca calculating hiv statistics now they're using the same formula for rmssd that everybody else is yeah. but what's different is how they're managing noise and artifact in real time on their device and that's obviously going to influence the output HRV statistics. And again, you know, we've got a black box problem where we've got information coming into a system and we're getting perhaps their their the HRV statistics output, you know, and sometimes researchers are, are using those indices in their in their studies, but they don't really know how those HRV statistics were calculated, how some of these trickier points were managed, like noise detection, yeah. you know, Windsorization. Uh, so I think, you know, we have to be really, really careful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you dive into that and it gets really, you know, and then we were talking a little bit ahead of the show. It's like, you know, and then asking and trying to find out even how you may have better luck than, than I do. Like, how do you calculate a readiness score or a one, one app had a productivity score, which from, from somebody, I would love to give you a productivity score, but how, how are you, how are, and well, it's proprietary data. So as a clinician, like I can't run on hypotheticals, especially when we're talking about relapse, suicide, potential suicide, thinking like Thanks. those sort of things. I can't, I can't trust you that this is, if you're not going to tell me how you're getting this data how do I trust 
that that uh, a piece of this. So this is kind of the commercialization of the field. Uh, you know, is a little scary to me because you can make these leaps. And a lot of folks who haven't done the research that you you've done and I've started to do, uh, you might be given really bad data to folks. And that's it's tough enough when you're just, hey, here's your RMSSD. Uh, how do you handle artifacts? How do you, you know, handle movements? You know, don't pay attention to your breathing, just breathe normal. But what is normal breathing? And if you want to change somebody's breathing, tell them to breathe normal. So all that <laughs> stuff in. And so somebody who's attempting, if I'm understanding correctly, to, to really kind of get a continuous 24-7 monitoring, there seems to be a lot of challenges in that of if I stand up, my heart rate variability is going to change. If I sit down, if I take a drink of water, if I cough, so it seems like you're you're going to be working to handle and account for a lot of artifact that hopefully if you're sitting down and trying to be halfway decent and quiet taking a reading, you can account for some of that. You know, how, how do you approach that in getting accurate data when the world is happening around the individual? Yeah, yeah, and you know, Right. It's a, it's a great question. Right. Uh, you know, humans are complex, you know, uh, heterogeneous in their presentation, their physiology, their psychology, you know, th these, you know, it's hard, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's hard, you know, to develop kind of predictive models uh, that can have real world clinical implications. But in a, in a recent study um, based on data from a, uh, uh, previous again uh, NIAAA study uh, that we completed a few years ago that we recently published, uh, uh, and I think actually you might have referred to this at the the beginning of the the podcast. This, this particular paper, we we're actually able to uh, predict um, alcohol use in people in early recovery from alcohol use disorder based yeah. on their average ambulatory HIV, and that was really that was collected under real world conditions. You know, we did we. You know, that data was collected in real time. It, it wasn't a, we weren't calculating their HIV based on a 24 hour recording. It was so epochs of five minute epochs um, of HIV that were calculated related to uh, the EMA surveys participants were completing in that study. And we could have looked at 24 hour recordings, but that just, you know, that that's another going to be a different paper. Right. Um, uh, but nevertheless, we were able to take every calculate average HIV for these individuals as they were going about their, you know, day, you know, uh, perhaps under, you know, certainly under variable conditions, they might have been sitting, they might have been standing, they might have been walking, you know, um, it, during these epochs of recording that we, you know, um, uh, pulled out of their longer 24-hour uh, multi-day recordings. And we were able to use those average HIV scores to predict how much somebody would drink subsequently. Low HIV was associated with greater alcohol use. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now, you know, what are the clinical clinical implications for that? You know, like potentially, you could argue. You know, you could say uh, that you know individuals' HIV statistics uh, derive from ambulatory monitoring 
could have some kind of protective utility in, in this population of people. In this case, it was folks with alcohol use disorder in, in terms of predicting uh, risk for, for lapse or subsequent alcohol use. Now, would you use that solely? you know, in isolation to drive all your clinical decision-making? No, of course not. But it's an objective measure. You can yeah. potentially leverage or utilize in your clinical decision-making that you could, you know, that could complement your yeah. self-report measures. Remember in, in psychiatry, clinical psychology, I mean, like 99% of what we do is self-report. Right. We ask people, you know, how are you feeling? Yeah. You know, what do you think you're going to do? And, you know, that that's all really valuable. We don't have a lot of bioassays. Right. And that, that's, a, that's a real limitation of our field. Yes. And so anytime we can have an objective measure of risk, you know, I think there's potential value there. But of course, that needs to be couched in the broader context of, you know, treatment planning and, and clinical considerations and other kinds of assessments. But, you know, could, could it, you know, like HIV, could that complement, you know, uh, clinical decision making? Absolutely. Knowing that, of course, you know, there's going to be noise in yeah. that recording, there might be some accuracy issues. But if an individual is presenting with low heart rate variability, like I want to know that as a clinician, because yeah. that suggests to me that there's probably a logical vulnerability uh, in addition to potential psychological vulnerabilities or social vulnerabilities that that individual is experiencing that could pretend risk for relapse. And that's just, it's another piece of the diagnostic or, or um, clinical decision-making pie. It's huge. And like that, that's was one of my real, like trying to fit the pieces together. And I, I just couldn't with the existing, like how do we then get that data to the clinician in real time? So, so there is that, you know, way to reach out with a phone call and say, Hey, I've seen your scores have been trending. You know what? What's going on? And it may be, hey, they decided to train for a marathon. You know, it could be something very good. But it, that one phone call, and I, I think both of our experiences, especially in uh, substance use, yeah, that social support, and if you can break a a pattern of behavior that might lead to a relapse, you know, a phone call, a text message, it might. I mean, not to be overdramatic, save someone's life because relapses Absolutely. are such a dangerous thing because it's usually not, at least my my folks, it's not a, a mild use. It's, it is, I'm going, you know, a relapse is a big use and with opiates or other potentially well, could be deadly life drugs. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. it's amazing yeah. what this could do. Uh, that's... Yeah, you're talking about real-time interventions, and you know, I think there's potential utility, but I think there's also utility for introducing HIV measures into clinical practice. Yeah. You know, if we have a kind of a measure of, of folks' HIV you know, across days, or, or maybe we even just do a quick five-minute HIV assessment while people are sitting across from us in a, in a therapy session, yeah. you know, if we can use that information uh, to complement you know, the other sources of information we could have, that could be really valuable. And you ask, like, how would we get this information? Well, it's pretty easy to measure HIV using, you know, little clip-on wearable devices yeah. now that we can, you know, have in the clinic, in our practice. But also, you know, there are devices uh, like um, I, the Vivi Health uh, system, which I'm a yeah. scientific advisor on um, uh, the Vivi Health 
um, advisory board and and you know that's a that's a really nice uh, device uh, that utilizes a, you know a, a relapse prevention smartphone app, but it also includes a wearable like a you know like a Fitbit that's connected to the app. Uh, so that it is actually collecting heart rate and heart rate variability information in real time as people go about their days, their weeks, and you know that information is available to clinicians. And I think uh, HS as well is is another uh, relapse prevention app out of the University of Wisconsin that I I'm not sure if that integrates a wearable, but you know potentially it might. Uh, you know, but you know these apps are feeding information to the clinician, yeah, you know, in real time, but also so that it's available in session you know, so that one can review the information with the patient and look yeah. at the week that was and, and you know, what were the highs, what were the lows, how, we, how was your sleep, you know, what was your physiological arousal looking like, you know, right? So that's, you know, so there, there are ways we can sort of begin to um, pull this information into our clinical practices. And I think we're going to see more and more of that as these devices and apps become yeah. more and more ubiquitous. Absolutely. So I, I, I boy, I, I want to ask you about HRV biofeedback. So let me throw that out there because I know I, I'm throwing out another big topic when we we're uh, only got a few minutes left. But but I gotta I gotta ask you just sort of how as you think about the really exciting you know and I love that you're tackling these problems because you know my 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 questions are not to challenge but they're out of excitement is I, I haven't seen a way to get over these barriers there there's these whether they're technical whether they're just our biology whether they're algorithms it, it seems like we kind of could get stuck in these boxes and what i love about your work is you're getting out of those boxes so i'm really excited so I, i'll just ask you a general question and with hopes that you'll come back and record another episode with me <laughs> down the road just on this but talk to me about how using the hrv biofeedback, same science, just as, uh, uh, you know, helping to heal, helping to regulate um, a supplement to treatment. How's that uh, informed your work as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a separate uh, track of my research. And then I talked at the beginning about, you know, the clinical interventions. I'm interested in how we can leverage what we know about psychophysiology and then uh, you know, and how we can leverage that knowledge and, and to better clinical interventions that are going to have real impact in people's lives and improve treatment outcomes. Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, I always felt was a limiting factor of heart rate variability biofeedback was the, the, the technology we were utilizing in the early days uh, was just, you know, it just, it wasn't really accessible. It was never going to scale up. And, and for those who don't, you know, in the early days, you know, we would bring people into the lab and we would have these big, you know, pretty expensive, you know, setups, you know, where we, and we would hook people up to an ECG monitor and a respiration sensor, yeah. and, you know, some, you know, other, other devices. And, you know, it, it was like, you know, it was kind of complicated. There was some, you know, early um, uh, devices, ambulatory devices for HIV biofeedback practice that were okay, but they were kind of clunky. And yeah. and frankly, you know, our study participants never really liked using them because, you know, it was like an ad additional device they had to carry. And, you know, so there were, there were real limitations there. And I always worried that even though HIV biofeedback really seemed to help people and the, the data really showed that it, you know, improved, um, 
you know, uh, you know, reduce negative affect. And, and, you know, we were showing in folks with substance use disorder, it was, you know, significantly reducing craving. And, you know, like, you know, it was like, this is great, has real, your know, real potential to, to benefit people. But who's going to use it? Like, well, who can access it first? Like, yeah. try finding a yeah. provider who know is trained in HIV biofeedback and then has the equipment. <clears throat> There's a tiny portion of the population that are going to be able to access this intervention. So I was really excited to see, um, you know, uh, companies, you know, like Optimal HIV, Leaf uh, Therapeutics as well, who have really, um, you know, sought to develop, you know, HIV biofeedback technology to make it more accessible, to make it scalable. Uh, you know, like the Leaf device, for instance, is is a product people can order a subscription to online. Anybody can yeah. access it. It's a wearable biosensor. You don't need to, you know, find a clinician who's trained in HIV biofeedback. You know, they have like training apps and, and uh, videos, but uh, sorry, baked into their app. And uh, they have like online coaches and, you know, it's, it's accessible, it's scalable, you know, and, and I, I got really excited when I saw, uh, that product launch because I really felt for the first time it's like you know perhaps HIV biofeedback can be an intervention that people can actually access and use in the real world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that you know with our shared passion for for the populations we work with was just like especially worth working with Dr. Hazan. It's like you know the 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 research around resonance frequency breathing and bringing that. You know, even if you're just using the pacer and you're not tracking, you you have that additional coping skill and trying to do that in a trauma-informed way, knowing not everybody is going to respond well to to, to the traditional mindfulness is has been really a great thing to be able to bring that that science into the affordable category um, uh, with it because I I I've, I've found it so powerful in my own health and wellness um like i said it's like mindfulness but on steroids it's like oh this this it's, works it's a and, powerful tool right i mean we can we can affect big changes in our physiological state physiological arousal by modifying our breathing and you know this is widely recognized now you know even in, in dialectical behavior therapy which yeah. is you know really you know well-established treatment now uh prince it was originally developed for the um uh, to treat borderline personality disorder, but it's you know now widely used for other yeah. other problems, and and you know it includes a module on pace breathing, yeah, or, or a skill, uh, a pace breathing skill, and you know it's essentially six breaths per minute breathing, yeah, right, you know it's, it's it doesn't you know it's not it doesn't include the biofeedback and you know a, a device, but you know we're talking about pace breathing in in other areas uh, of clinical psychology as well. You know, so you know, I think that's exciting too. That you know, this knowledge that's really come out of our um, the study of HIV biofeedback has really has trickled down into other interventions. I mean, yeah, you know, it's not to say you know interventions like CBT weren't talking about breathing. You know, they've been talking about it for a long time. But I think where you know we're talking about it a little bit differently as a function of uh, what we now know about HIV biofeedback and its conferred benefits. Yeah, and I I think we're we're evolving in and uh, you know take a deep breath to a, a more specific protocol, um, yeah that that helps that that regulation and that's the exciting thing especially working with folks with trauma where you don't know what can be triggering 
like the the interventions like breathing i i love the tapping stuff yep. as well <laughs> is we're getting to this you know these supplemental pieces to help folks integrate to heal to regulate um that that i i just i love being in psychology right now because my joke is when i was trained in the late 90s in grad school it was kind of boring you sat in a chair i sat in a chair we just we talked and it wasn't really boring but you know not now we've got emdr we've got more and more integration of biofeedback uh different breathing strategies trauma-informed mindfulness is really taken off and it's it's really it's exciting so the tools that we can give individuals, uh, you know, moving forward, uh, which which I, leads me back to my final question. Uh, you know, uh, and, and again, I, I hope to have you back because I'm going to keep a definite eye on your research that we've talked about. But when what do you see when you look five, 10 years into the future and you may be writing a lot of this future with what the work that we've been discussing in detail, where do you see with AI, with algorithms, with technology, all advancing at pretty exponential rates? Where, where do you see us five, 10 years from now um, from your experience and what you're working on currently? Yeah. You know, I, You know, I think we're going to see greater uptake of heart rate variability by feedback because it has you know, it's become more scalable. But I think also uh, we are going to see greater integration of AI, which is really a, a you know very sophisticated form of machine learning. I mean, ultimately, yeah. you know, AI, you know, technology is based on algorithms that are created yeah. by people, and uh, so they're not complete black boxes in that way. Um, but you know what I'm really excited about, you know, is how you know we're going to use be able to use passive monitoring to improve or you know develop new or better just-in-time interventions. So you know I'm thinking about things like digital phenotyping, and using um, you know pulling uh, information off people's smartphones to to, to you know uh, utilizing that information as indicants of of emotional state of affect of mood of risk yeah. uh, you know for for substance use relapse but also um perhaps suicide you know so that we can in, be using that information in a complementary fashion to affect better just in time interventions where we're getting out in front of people's risk before they're even aware that risk and i i think you know in terms of our, uh, the way we monitor hrv i think we're going to see greater and greater passive HRV monitoring, and you know, right now we're, you know, we're at a, a, a point in um, the development of technology where, you know, we we've gone from these giant holder devices, right? Yeah. That used to be like having a phone book around your neck, <laughs> and the holder devices got smaller and smaller and smaller, and now we've got these tiny ECG devices, and we've got these smartwatches that people yeah. can wear. But I I wonder in the future, you know, whether we'll even be you know, monitoring HIV using uh, wearable devices. And for instance, uh, at MIT, some time ago, and there's an app, and I, 
um, that I think is still available for download, and the name of it's escaping me. Uh, but essentially, you know, it converts your your uh, smartphone camera into a uh, HIV monitoring device simply by uh, yeah. monitoring the capillary blood flow in your face. So you just hold your your camera up and. And it, it, you know, it, it can see the flushing, intermittent yeah. flushing, you know, with each heartbeat that are, that occurs in our faces. It's not visible to the human eye, and it right. can calculate heart rate and heart rate variability yeah. from that. So, you know, could we, you know, uh, you know, be wearing, you know, like Meta are coming out with, you know, sunglasses and glasses yeah. that include, you know, um, cameras that monitor track our eye movement. You know, are they also going to monitor our skin and you know, potentially, you know, be calculating HIV and HR statistics for us in real time that could then be fed into our, you know, to inform our just-in-time interventions? You know, it sounds like maybe like that. It's a bit far-fetched and a bit ways off, but not really. I mean, the technology is yeah. around. It just needs to be sort of managed in a way that you know makes it sort of you know, scalable financially, sort of. Yeah, you know, cost effective, but it seems like it's something that could be doable. You know, think about where we were ten years ago, right? With wearables and how far we've come in just ten years. I mean, we we didn't have smartphones in two thousand and five. Exactly, you know, that was how long ago? You know, so well. And the exciting thing is, I, I'd sort of love to talk to these departments sometimes because of how they treat heart rate variability. But when you've got Apple, Fitbit's owned by Google now, you got Meta. I mean, you've got the the biggest, wealthiest companies in the history of the world, you know, coming to this science. Um, sometimes, well, sometimes, like, like I said, I just love to sit in on a team meeting and see how they talk about it. But yeah, it's, it's like, it can only get, I mean, to only get better in research like yours is really, I mean, I'm just so excited for what you're doing because we we need to really get scientific about this and have it, you know, open to how are you figuring these stress scores, you know, and having that box not be shut behind AI and kicking out things that may be valid, may not be valid. So hey, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Eddie, for your work. Um, we, we will put some information uh, in the show notes at uh, optimalhrv.com. You can find those. Um, I really hope that this is a uh, a first of many conversations that we have because I'm definitely going to follow your research uh, where you're going with this because this is like I said you are addressing a lot of just walls that I've hit along the way and I didn't think we were going to probably get to the other side of them so I, I'm just so excited about that you're working on that and uh, to to be a fan uh, rooting you on in that journey I, I'm excited to see where you go. Thanks so much, man. It's been a, been a pleasure being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.